All right. Well, we are uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. My name is Monty, by the way, if you're a guest. We're so glad that you're here. And we're continuing a series. We're on our third week of five weeks, uh, working our way through this amazing chapter uh, about resurrection. Before I get to that, I thought of a song this week, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but uh, it was recorded by Tim McGraw back in 2004. Uh, you can see the title there, Live Like You Were Dying. And, you know, isn't it interesting how uh, big songs, big hits, I mean, it was CMA, Song of the Year, and a Grammy, and all that kind of thing, but those kinds of songs we resonate with, right? We, we kind of get them because the song gets us. So that idea of living like you're dying, we, we intuitively know that, that imminent death affects us, right? It alters our perspective. It shuffles our priorities so that we truly live differently with that kind of reality. And uh, so Tim got that. The way the song plays out, it's as if Tim is sitting down with another guy who had a life-changing brush with death, and uh, he's telling his story. And Tim asks, well, what'd you do? And the man says, he sings, but again, I'm not going to sing. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. This is my favorite line. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. That's awesome. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And then the man said, someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. Now, why would a guy say that? I think it's because he knows that living like that is the best way to live. There's nothing like it. Everything's clear. It's not confusing. It's focused, crystal clear. I think that's kind of Paul's mindset as he's in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection. See, he thinks that the resurrection of Jesus ought to affect us the same way that some kind of notice that death is coming soon would affect us. He just thinks if you really get that, if that, if that fills your vision, you're going to live differently. You can't not live differently if you really let this sink in. And if Paul were writing a country song, then it wouldn't be live like you're dying. It would be live like you're rising. And he knows what that's like. Now, some in the Corinthian church, and this is a little bit startling because we're hearing that some were denying the resurrection. That they somehow had a category for Christianity without a risen Christ. And that seems so bizarre. But because of the cultural pressure that Phil talked about last week, we get that that, that was like hard to process. So we love all the stuff about Christianity. So we'll just embrace that. And let's not bother with all this resurrection stuff that's hard to agree with. Paul just tackles it head on, says we, we have to talk about this because it is central to Christianity as a whole. Now, Phil uh, took uh, 
a section of a larger segment that I'm finishing today. It's in three parts. So let me lay this out to just give us a good backdrop. It's in uh, it's verses 12 to 34. Phil covered 12 to 19, and it's under the header, If Christ Has Not Been Raised. Today, the next segment we're going to get into is Paul affirming that Christ has indeed been raised, and that matters, and we're going to find out how. And then he finishes the segment uh, with a phrase that may be familiar to you. Hopefully, you'll learn a little more about it this morning, but he talks about bad company ruining good morals. And I think what he's really getting at is theology matters. What you believe, this is not some academic institution. Theology is what you believe about the most important things in life. Certainly God and his plan and his activity. That's all theology. And Paul's saying theology matters. You will live in a particular way based upon what you believe. And if you surround yourself with people who believe differently than you do and don't adhere to what you understand to be true, that has a good chance of taking you down. So we'll get to that. Let's, let's do a quick review over that first section that Phil covered last week. So hypothetically, Paul is saying, if Christ hasn't been raised, here's what you get. Our message is empty, meaningless, doesn't matter at all, doesn't matter what we're saying. Our faith is in vain because it doesn't have any object. Third, we're all liars. <laughs> we, we told you that Christ rose from the dead. And if he didn't, we know that and we're lying. Then we're lost in our sins. You see, there is a fundamental problem on earth and I don't have to explain this to you because you see it all around you. We live in a broken world. There is something wrong and there's something in all of us that says there ought to be something done about what's wrong, right? Justice, we, we get that, right? So every religion is trying to answer the question, what do you do with what's wrong? Christianity says God did something about it completely apart from anything you could have done, and it all hinges upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Without that, there is no solution. You and I still have a problem. We're dead in our sin. And anyone who has died before us, they're lost. Finally, Paul would say, we among all people on earth, poor Christians, they ought to be pitied above all. What a pathetic group of people who believe in something that doesn't exist and therefore doesn't matter. Those are the implications if, hypothetically, Christ didn't raise. Then he shifts into um, getting more into the reality of Christ has been raised. So now we're moving out of hypothetical into certifiable. We did hit the history. Remember in week one, Jeff covered the historical evidence for the resurrection. So now we're going to look at the theology of the resurrection. Look in verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul is shifting his attention away from some of the immediate circumstances, and he's pointing toward the larger redemptive plan of God. He's pointing backward to creation, Genesis 3 in particular, and then he's going to point forward to the very end of all things, Revelation 20. He's going to explain how the resurrection is crucial to putting all of that together. He uses a phrase here, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, as a way of describing the resurrection of Christ. Now, when he says those who have fallen asleep, he's referring specifically to those who are believers and have died. That's the specific reference. So it's not referring to anybody who's died. It's those who have died in Christ. And he's saying that Christ, having risen, he is the first fruits of all who will rise in faith at the end. We'll, we'll get there, but let me tell you what Paul's doing here. He's borrowing from some Old Testament ceremonial practices that Israel was given as God's people. I'm sure you've heard we talk about first fruits on a monthly basis, but the basic idea was God commanded his people who were agricultural to take the first portion from their harvest, to take it to the temple and to dedicate it to the Lord before they did anything else, before they, before they brought in the harvest, before they sold it, before they ate it, before they did anything else, that was the practice. And that was their way of acknowledging that this was provided to us by God. It's his way of taking care of us. It's our way of worshiping him. So we, quote, sacrifice this small portion, our first and best, as a way of acknowledging all this about what God has done, and then it's a testimony to the harvest we're going to bring in after. Now think about that for a second. Christ is the first fruits of all who will be resurrected. So Christ is God's first and best. Christ is the one who he, God sacrificed so that others might have life. And therefore, his resurrection, that verifying, validating moment in history, it serves as an example and then also as a guarantee of future resurrection. So we get to look at Jesus and we go, okay, that's what I can anticipate. His resurrection helps me know what my resurrection will be like. And the fact that he did rise from the dead, that is God's guarantee that I can count on that as well. So that's the language that he's picking up there. And he's basically establishing the inevitability of our resurrection. And, and the connection I want to help us make, we'll keep coming back to this. Again, if you get a diagnosis of terminal something, it's going to affect you, right? You're going to live differently. Your priorities are going to change. He's trying to help us have the same view of our resurrection, the inevitability of that. And that if you and I are absolutely convinced about that happening in our future, we will live differently today. 
regardless of what anybody else in the world is doing around us. Paul highlights two men who stand over all of humanity and all of history, Adam and Jesus. And those two men shape all of our experiences. First of all, Adam's sin introduces death to creation. Remember, God said to Adam, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die, right? That's the the consequence. That's the judgment there. So all of humanity, as a result of Adam's sin, is infected with that reality. All of us are infected by depravity. Then Jesus, he brings in a way for the curse to be broken through his righteousness. So all who are in Christ are made alive. And that just means that if someone trusts in him, they can be forgiven, they can be restored, they will be renewed, and they will have access to eternal life in God. Now in verse 22, there's two references to all there. It says, all in Adam uh, die, and then all who are in Christ are made alive. Some will say that that's suggesting universal, universalism, the, the idea that everyone will ultimately be saved. So, first of all, the sinful part, that is universal. That does apply to all of us, and we know that because everybody dies. That's our reality. That's our experience. But we know from the rest of our New Testament that not all are saved. And so in order to interpret that correctly, like we could read that and go, oh, looky here, it says that all are saved. But then when we read other places in our New Testament, we find out, no, not all are saved. In fact, there'll there'll be judgment one day. And some will remain separated from God. So in light of that, this can't mean that all are saved, it must mean that all who are in Christ are saved. So that's a really important distinction. He moves out of the universal into the particular. Theology matters. Plenty of people throughout church history have gone off the rails because they uh, left some of these fundamental truths. Now here's a caution for all of us who may find ourselves, as we're thinking about this idea of resurrection, uh, we might even affirm it, but then misapply it. Here's what that might look like. On the one hand, it could be someone who says, because I believe in the resurrection and I've entrusted my life to Christ, I get easy street. Uh, An image I like to think about is a picnic on the battlefield. Like, doesn't that sound crazy? Just think of the worst place on earth. Bombs are going off, bullets flying, everything's happening, and you're on your little checkered blanket sitting there eating a piece of chicken. That just doesn't happen. And the resurrection doesn't assure that kind of life for you and me in a world at war with God. So this is a battleground. And resurrection doesn't mean that it's not going to be challenging. So so it would be a misapplication of resurrection life to think that somehow that's going to make life easy. That's on one end. On the other end, uh, I I like to think of this as like being a spiritual POW, a prisoner of war. It's someone who they might affirm the resurrection and they look to their future and the beauty of what they're going to have with God, but their life 
looks more like incarceration. They are bound by their circumstances, by their struggles, by their challenges, and all of that. Uh, let me read Romans 8, 1 and 2 to you. This is, the, this is resurrection life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the Spirit of life, resurrection life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The idea there is that Sin and death for those who have entrusted their life to Christ has no more power than they choose to give it. You've been set free. That's resurrection life. Theology matters. And how you appropriate the truth. So that's a caution. Now let's look toward where Paul directs our attention, and that is to the end, what he calls the end. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father. Now, I'll just warn you, there's a lot of pronouns here. We're going to have to sort through all this. Uh, um, so when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25. For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. How appropriate. For God has put all things, that is God the Father, has put all things in, in subjection under Christ's feet. So, from a theological perspective, what we're getting into here is a fancy word, eschatology, or end times, last Things. This is how all of history is going to be wrapped up. And the resurrection is crucial to the whole plan. So I've got a, a, a slide up here. I'm not going to get into the details. I, I taught quite a bit on this in Isaiah 65. So if you want to go back to our Isaiah series, I hit this as well. But let me kind of hone in on this. What Paul is saying is God is working out a plan and it is going to arrive at a destination. And every Christian creed or confession agrees that Jesus will come back, that he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and he will return. Where the debate comes in is when. And how is all that going to play out? There's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate there. That's, that's okay. It's really important that we agree on the fact that he is coming back. Let me give you a little bit of a sense about how I understand these end times to play out in a very general way. So we've got uh, on the slide the crucifixion and then the immediate resurrection of Christ happening there. And that ushers in what's known as a church age. That's the age that we're currently in. There's no time frame given. There's no parameters there. It's just however long God has planned before he brings it to a conclusion. The way it's brought to a conclusion is the return of Christ. And when he comes back, we'll see Revelation 20. What's described there, we're going to see that happening. It's going to usher in a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, where 
as we just read in 1 Corinthians, he will put all of the opposition to God in subjection to himself. So that's something that we should anticipate. At the end of that thousand years, then final judgment will take place. And death will be judged forever and ever. Amen. It will be done and all of creation, whatever that looks like, will be exactly as God intends. Okay? That's eschatology. It's not just for your intellect. If you have confidence in that, then the circumstances of this world, the, the tough days, they're still tough. But you will approach it differently. You'll live differently. Instead of trying to control everything, you'll live with open hands. You'll invite God to be God because he is causing all things to accomplish his purposes. And his purposes are the very best version of life I could ever have, as hard as they may be at times. All right, so after establishing that this is where all of this is going, this is that, that resurrection set in motion, uh, like the tracks were laid and the train is going to go to a destination and it's going to get there right on time, whether I know what that time is or not. And it's going to look like all things being in subjection to Christ. But then Paul includes a clarification. He says, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things, here's those pronouns again, goodness gracious. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. I want you to read that about 50 times. That God may be all in all. What, what Paul is doing here is he is living in the reality of what we understand as Trinity. Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. All God, but somehow distinct in persons. Now, what's interesting to me is Paul doesn't try to like persuade us. He speaks about this as it's just matter of fact. And I will tell you, if you try to make this some kind of rational sense in your own head, you're going to go crazy. Having said that, though, we can't just dismiss it because it's hard to comprehend. What we have here is what is unique to God, and that is that he is one God made up of three persons. And the picture on the slide shows you that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God, but they're not each other. They are distinct from one another. They're co-equal, they're co-eternal, there's no distinction whatsoever in value, but there is a distinction in terms of their function, the roles that they play. It's like if you have a job description for the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they don't read exactly alike, but they are in perfect unity with one another. They complement one another by what they do. It's called functional subordination. So, that's a little bit of an aside. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. But it is who God is. And we don't want to in any way diminish who God is just because sometimes that can be difficult to understand. 
Basically, Paul is interested not in us just having good theology, it's how that theology affects our lives. And just like imminent death creates a sense of urgency, right? He's saying your understanding of God and the role of the resurrection in a believer's life, that ought to create some urgency. We ought to be able to see an effect. Think about Paul himself. Think about who he was prior to meeting Christ, the risen Christ. Like, he's a persecutor, and then he becomes a pastor. How does that happen? Unless the resurrection is absolutely true and real. Paul, I think Paul would say, having met the resurrected Christ and having served him for all of those years, I think he would say to us, like the the writer of uh, Tim McGraw's song, I sure hope that you get the chance to live like you're rising. That's the best way to live. Eugene Peterson says this in his book, Practice Resurrection. Church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. Death of nations, death of civilization, death of marriage, death of careers, obituaries without end. The practice of resurrection is a deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death. Life that trumps death. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. You feel that? That's the kind of life that Paul wants for us. That's the kind of life God wants for us. That we would be so consumed with this gift of resurrection, it would change everything about us. So let's finish our time by thinking about what would it look like for us to practice resurrection day in and day out. I think there's four aspects or attributes. The first is radical integrity. Radical integrity. And this may seem a little bit strange, but kind of hang with me through this. This is another one of those verses, and I keep asking myself, how do I keep getting these? I need to assign more of these to Jeff. But... Nevertheless, it is what it is. Verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So some have suggested that what Paul's doing here is advocating for baptism on behalf of people who have died. In other words, if I have a friend or a relative or somebody who died and I'm not sure how good they are with God... I can be baptized on their behalf to get them right with God somehow. He is definitely not advocating that because we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. That's never been the point of baptism. What Paul is doing here is he's illustrating how absurd it would be to deny the resurrection and yet be baptized for people who are dead who will be resurrected someday. You see how, that, how strange that is? But here's what he's honing in on, I think. He's saying those people, though they are in error, they have great integrity with their beliefs. They're looking forward to a resurrection and they want to make sure they take care of business. 
before they get there or anybody else that they know. In contrast to these Corinthian believers who are denying the resurrection. He's saying those people have more integrity than you do. And you claim to know the risen Christ. So practicing the resurrection is to have great integrity in your life and in a sense of joining the future with the present so that it reflects that belief in every sense of the word. So radical integrity. Secondly, radical risk. Short phrase, deep waters. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Is there anybody in here who kind of feared for your life come to church this morning? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, it was a little rainy, a little slippery out there. You know, lose control of the car. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we just came in here, man, see our friends, big hugs, big smiles. How's the week going? In fear for their life, following Christ, fulfilling his mission. That's resurrection Christianity. And he's like, this, this is normal. This isn't strange. It's not unexpected because we're living out our faith in a world at war with God. And so if we face persecution, if, if we face difficult circumstances, we just go, you know what, that, that's life in a broken world. But it doesn't even begin to compare to what awaits me beyond this world. So it, it puts everything in perspective. The assurance of resurrection neutralizes earthly threats. I don't mean that you don't feel anything about it. I just mean that in terms of its importance, its significance, its impact, it's neutralized because we know where things are going. For the believer, this world is as bad as it gets. Be encouraged. For the unbeliever, this world is as good as it gets. That's all you got. I love what uh, David Platt says in his book, Radical. Somewhere along the way, we missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it with, with what is comfortable. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the invitation. Now, the only way Jesus gives that kind of invitation is because he knows what he's going to deliver on the other side. So will you come and die? Not physically, maybe, I don't know, but would you die to yourself? Would you embrace a Christianity that costs you dearly every day? That is practicing resurrection. That's an urgency that's sort of like living like you're dying, but instead it's living like you're rising. 
Paul continues in verse 31, radical sacrifice. I protest, brothers. You could also say I boast, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Likely he wasn't actually put into the Colosseum to fight animals because he most assuredly would have been killed. But that was a way of speaking about all of the opposition that he encountered and certainly, gosh, read about his life, the beatings and the torture and everything else that he faced. He's impassioned here, but he... He's describing a life of sacrifice that is worthy of the resurrection belief. That it, it, it's akin to it, not opposed to it. And he's saying, this is how far I will go in order to live out my belief in this. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, some of the last words that he wrote to um, his disciples. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. No picnic. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Here's resurrection. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but to all who uh, have loved his appearing. Everybody who practices resurrection, that's what they can expect. Radical sacrifice. Lastly, radical sobriety. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Phil touched on that last week. Like, why else would you live any other way than just for temporary, momentary pleasure, comfort? Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. If resurrection is real, it, it demands a lot of us, but it delivers a lot to us at the end of life. And I think what Paul is saying here, you have to guard that, cultivate that, right? Theology matters. What you believe will dictate how you live. Bad company, that word can also be uh, translated conversation, ruins or corrupts good morals. So when you surround yourself with speculative ideas about worldly things, it begins to clutter your thinking. It begins to distract your heart. And you do begin to start living for things that are meaningless and shallow and empty, that, that have no substance to them. So if you entertain, if you fill your view with all of that stuff, you're not going to practice resurrection. It will corrupt you. It will ruin the life that you've been called to live. So wake up. Don't go on sinning. And it's not just like a stop it. It means redirect your view. 
And as you do that, it will change the way you live. You'll stop sinning because you'll be so consumed with resurrection life that has been secured for you. And then he finishes by saying, you know, some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, if you really get this resurrection life and what a precious gift it is, you'll look around and see how many people don't have that and never will unless someone will come to them and share this incredible news of the gospel. That's resurrection life. It changes everything. So I want to give you an opportunity. I'm going to invite the worship team back out. We're going to respond in worship this morning. And we've got great reason to do that. I want to ask you to to consider for a few moments what would it look like? How would things change if you were to live like you were rising? Would it look like radical integrity, radical risk, radical sacrifice, perhaps, maybe radical sobriety? Ask the Lord to uh, bring to your attention how you might adjust in order to uh, more fully embrace this incredible resurrection life that he has secured for you. Take a moment to consider that.